Hey, do you remember cities? I remember them. I mean, I've always lived in cities, and I live in one today. And despite the intervention of a generational pandemic, I still don't see myself leaving them behind anytime soon. When I travel, or back when we more frequently did that kind of thing, I always visited cities. There's a feeling I get when I'm in them, even as a tourist, when the energy of a city opens itself up to me and moves me just a little bit differently. The manic claustrophobia of Hong Kong, the postmodern duality of Berlin, or the expansive clarity of Austin, where the blue of Ladybird Lake meets Texas's infinite pastel sky. Getting to know even a bit about how a city works feels like getting to know its unique society, which is the thing that drives my work as a journalist, the chance to understand humanity just a little bit better every day. I'm Adrian Lee, and I'm an editor for the opinion section at The Globe and Mail. We've spent years thinking a lot about the future of cities over here. But amid the COVID-19 pandemic, we've been thinking about them, and a lot of other things, a whole lot differently. Over the course of six episodes, we're going to examine different aspects of modern city building, how it has worked, what's being considered today, and how it could all be done better. How do we make city space work for every citizen? And how do we know if we're doing a good job? I don't know, but I'm excited to talk to the people who do. Many of the things most of us love about cities went away over the course of these last two years. We've seen businesses flicker on and offline. We've seen restaurants forced to improvise and build ad hoc patios on busy sidewalks. We've seen thrumming streets empty out, parks either filled with housing encampments or cordoned off, and communities burst apart. Our world shrunk to the size of our homes. Outside our doorstep felt like the wilderness. A lot of what we considered to be city life, well, we watched it drain away. COVID-19 revealed how these places where dreams were made of were also places where dreams were, in many ways, made up. People were falling through the cracks. The pandemic just made it easier to wake up and realize that our cities weren't built with everyone in mind. And a lot of them initially weren't. They used to kind of happen by accident. People would choose the spots logically, sure. A place that was defensible from threats or had good resources, say, like a body of water. But they kind of just grow from there. It's no coincidence, though, that we've thrived when we assemble together in these kinds of places. According to the United Nations, about 56% of the world's population lives in an urban area today. And that's going to climb to 68% by 2050. So shouldn't we try hard to get cities right? Welcome to City Space, a podcast from The Globe and Mail. The best place for us to start is probably with one of urban planning's buzziest concepts right now. It's something called the 15-minute city. That's an approach to urban design meant to improve quality of life by creating cities where everything a person might need is a short 15-minute walk or bike ride away. That's right. Play Call Me Maybe by Canadian pop darling Carly Rae Jepsen four times, and boom, you're at your grocery store, the library, or the pharmacy, all without ever getting into a car. Added bonus, you listen to a generational pop song four times. 
Why have we left cities to develop on the wrong path for so long? I would like to offer a concept of cities that goes in the opposite direction to modern urbanism, an attempt at converging life into a human-sized space rather than fracturing it into inhuman bigness and then forcing us to adapt. I call it the 15-minute city. That was Carlos Moreno, professor at the Sorbonne University in Paris. He developed the idea. It was then adopted by Anne Hidalgo, the mayor of Paris, who built much of her 2020 re-election campaign around this bold concept, doubling down on car-free transit and pedestrian infrastructure and promising to make the French capital a 15-minute city. When she was re-elected on the strength of this radical-seeming idea, other cities' mayors perked up. An international coalition of cities called C40, which represents one-twelfth of the world's population and a quarter of the world's economy, created something called a Global Mayor's COVID-19 Recovery Task Force. You know, another classically snappy title from classically snappy bureaucrats. Mayors and representatives from all over the world, from Hong Kong to Medellin to Montreal, created this report on how cities can best bounce back from the pandemic. And one of their major recommendations to get there sounds awfully familiar. Quote, 15-minute cities, micro-mobility, and more space for walking and biking are innovative solutions that will help our cities rebuild, end quote. Cutting emissions, easing mass transit demands, and equitable access to jobs and city services for all. Sounds like a real no-brainer, right? But hold up, it's not quite so straightforward. More on that in a bit. This podcast is brought to you by Novo Nordisk. For a hundred years, Novo Nordisk has been working to help people with chronic diseases live full and healthy lives, driving change for the health of generations to come with the ultimate goal of a world free from the burden of chronic disease. To learn more, visit novonordisk.ca. So converging life into a human-sized space, rather than fracturing it into inhuman bigness, sounds like it'll fast-track us to convenience, to improved quality of life, and to greener living. And noted planner Jane Jacobs and the School of New Urbanism all said that proximity makes cities vital. So, I guess we've just figured out how to do better cities. I guess we can just wrap the podcast up here. I mean, all cities used to be 15-minute cities, too. That is, until the car showed up, and people got addicted to how quickly we can go from one place to another. That made it easier for cities to justify sprawling out with their new housing projects, since people can just drive wherever they need to go. And that's not so great, since car emissions are a leading cause of climate change. And what would it actually look like if we adopted the 15-minute city to our modern and future iterations of a city? Can we really just cut and paste this framework to North American cities? I mean, it can't be that easy, right? Conveniently for us, the Canadian capital of Ottawa jumped right on board to give us a test case. Last summer, they announced a 25-year blueprint that is hard-focused on urban intensification rather than sprawl. With about a million folks living there now, population in Ottawa is expected to double and possibly triple by 2046. And so Ottawa is looking toward maximizing the city's efficiency and livability. 
with the recent completion of a near 13-kilometer electric light rail track, they say they're keen to quickly figure out how to connect neighborhoods and keep them ticking without relying too heavily on the car. We talked to the man with the plan, Ottawa's manager of public planning, if you'll pardon the repetition. His name is Alain Migales. We asked him why the city feels there's a sense of urgency to implement the plan. I think the trajectory that Ottawa's followed is interesting in itself. We just finished a very large investment in uh, rail rapid transit. We call it the O-Train, but it's like a metro system. And with that comes a certain awakening of consciousness about the geography of mobility in the city, how you move around the city. The areas that are along corridors and near stations now take on a completely different role, complexion, level of interest. And the ability that the city has to generate good places out of those locations increases exponentially. So we can't miss the boat on that. And we don't want to miss the boat. But I think more than anything, Ottawa is the kind of city which is, you know, it's big enough to give you everything you want. Not so large that it suffocates people, so it attracts a lot of residents. Ottawa, as it exists today, is a classic Canadian example of what has been the main approach to urban planning in the 20th century. Residential sprawl, lots of freeways for cars, and big box shopping centers that are hard to get to easily. But he noted that while those planners had plenty of good intentions, the approach also resulted in really segregated neighborhoods that required you to have a gas-guzzling car. We want to consolidate the geography of the city where people can function on foot. We want to grow the area that is walkable in the city so that you have more to explore on foot, but also more in terms of access to areas that are already 15-minute neighborhoods and therefore that don't require people to own cars. You can buy one if you feel like it. It's a free country. But if you have the choice of either having one or not having one, we would rather give people the choice to not have one in a larger geographic area of the city. And so that's been kind of what we've been pursuing. And, and that goes hand in hand with the investment that we made in transit. And I think the other piece is that we just nearly uh, two years ago passed the one million mark municipally. So that's another awakening for a municipality. We're a city of a million. Uh, the greater metro area is a million and a half with Gatineau and the surrounding municipalities. So we're about the size Vancouver was when they hosted Expo 86. We're about the size Toronto was when they opened their subway in 1954. And we're here now with that size of city. And we have to start thinking about urban growth in a different way, not as a small town, but as a bigger city. Okay, that's a fairly lofty and honorable goal when you lay it out like that. But as you can imagine, it's a little more complicated than simply drawing up the plans, pushing them through for approval, and then busting out the toolbox to construct this walkable utopia. Cities can't just spring up overnight. And buildings and roads can't just move around freely. Not only that, committing to the 15-minute city as a mantra might also be a situation where good planning intentions can have bad results. I'm Jay Pitter. I'm a placemaker. That means that I lead projects pertaining to the design, programming, and policy of public spaces. I'm also an urban planning lecturer and an author. Jay believes that you can't just cut out a simplistic template from somewhere else and paste it onto North American cities, which have their own unique issues, like geographic size, for instance. And when it felt like many of her peers and colleagues all quickly jumped aboard the 15-minute city train, she felt that she needed to tell the Bloomberg 2021 City Lab conference what was on her mind. 
So I think I should start off by making it perfectly clear that I'm absolutely a champion of complete and resilient cities. And I understand that the 15-minute concept is focused on those two imperatives. My challenge with the 15-minute city is that it is repeating the error that urban planners have repeated numerous times with disastrous results. This idea that you can take an approach from a European city and propagate it across North American cities without deeply considering the different demographic context, geographic context, sociocultural context, and urban policy context is an absurd proposition. It's also pretty colonial and technocratic. So Jay has a lot of different and worthy criticism here. But the one we'll focus on is how we often forget that the way cities are zoned, that is, the city bylaws that really shape what kind of things can go where, can have, and have had, really racist and classist consequences. That's not just a U.S. thing. It happened, and is in fact happening, right here in Canada, too. In Vancouver, a standard clause in land deeds prevented people from selling or renting to, quote, any person of the Chinese, Japanese, or other Asiatic race, or to any indigenous or black person, end quote. And that was on the books until as recently as 1965. In Calgary, black Canadians were prevented from buying the more desirable homes outside the railway yards in the 1920s. And more recently, a report from the Center of Equality Rights and Accommodation found that black single parents and South Asian households have a one in four chance of encountering moderate to severe discrimination when inquiring about apartments for rent in Toronto. That's happening today. So what Jay is saying is that launching headlong into this new 15-minute city approach could eventually cement them and any new issues that come with them into our cities as these kinds of policies have before, even if they don't fit quite right. And there just hasn't been enough engagement with the vast array of different people who live in cities to know what quite right means. So what we could be inadvertently doing is entrenching uh, race and class divides that exist in the landscape. And a lot of people don't necessarily see it. It's invisible because it is uh, perpetuated by the force of policy. And the average person doesn't uh, think a lot about urban policy. Alain Miguelez, definitely not the average person on urban policy. He actually aligns with that thinking. He says that most Canadian cities built after 1950 wound up segregating black folks, Jewish folks, and low-income and immigrant folks in terms of functionality and space, and that he and his fellow Canadian planners are looking at a real paradigm shift in how we can drag our 20th century cities into the 21st. That's going to involve naming and attempting to dismantle some of those planning policies that, inadvertently or not, delivered bad results. It's the kind of work that, in a way, in our century, will be equivalent to the type of work that the planners of the 20th century were trying to tackle when they were dealt the challenge of the industrial city of the 19th century, overly polluted, overly contaminated, where they thought that the problem lay in the very things that they tried to radically correct, which is density and mix, where... You know, later we found that that's not what the problem was. It's not density and mix. It's, you know, sanitation. 
It's a good public space. Again, it's, it's looking at balance in what people have access to within an urban space. So we went to a segregation solution based also on the wealth of our you know, Western nations during the second half of the 20th century. After World War II, we were in a position of relative ease and abundance. So nobody really questioned the good intentions because everybody had sort of the means to partake. But that's also changed. That's not the case anymore. And so it is a complete paradigm shift in how you're thinking of the future layers of urbanization of the city. It's kind of a sedimentation century after century of principles and ideas that continue to take place based on learned history. If you can believe I have a favorite 19th century urban planning sanitation solve, well, I actually have one of those. Allow me to whisk you back to Victorian London, where the gin was flowing, people were calling each other governor, and everything was genuinely disgusting. That is to say, the streets were literally toilets, because flush toilets were basically not a thing. In 1854, the soon-to-be-swinging neighborhood of Soho in London was hit with a terrible cholera outbreak. No one knew how it was transmitted. Everyone's best guess was that it was from inhaling bad air, or bad smells from decomposing matter, which was definitely around at the time. The newly formed General Board of Health agreed, and government literature instructed citizens to simply avoid bad smells. The advice was essentially to improve ventilation in your house, keep your body clean and warm, and try to eat well. And just, you know, understand that living in the city meant you could casually get a horrible and fatal disease. But a man named Jon Snow, a doctor and not a Game of Thrones character, figured out that it was not contracted through the air, but through water contamination. Back then, you got your water from the neighborhood pump, and there was one every few blocks or so. Snow figured out that within a 250-yard radius of the Broad Street water pump, there was upwards of 500 fatal cholera attacks in 10 days. He presented his findings, but officials didn't really buy it. There were cases all over Soho, and how did he account for those? He felt sure, though, so he went on a data-collecting frenzy and mapped as many cases as he could. He found out that some folks didn't live near the pump, but walked by it on their way to work or school and stopped for a drink. He learned one coffee shop owner preferred this pump to the one nearest him, so he made the trek each morning to fill a big vat to brew coffee for his customers. A woman who lived miles away liked the taste of water from this pump best, and servants went to the pump to bottle it for her. Snow really got into the weeds with the residents. He listened to them. He mapped the problem, and then he figured it out. Okay, now back to present day. If city planners are invested in the 15-minute city, in part to create equitable access to amenities, like more parks for kids or various transportation options, on the surface, that is totally hard to contest. But, Jay argues, not all urban modern conveniences feel the same to all citizens. To some, the installation of things that urbanists think are the best, bright parquets, say, or a new bike lane, can look suspiciously like the slow integration of gentrification which, based on other experiences, could mean that housing prices will soon rise, and those very citizens will be priced out and, eventually, kicked out. So how do you work with unique communities to identify and focus on their specific needs? In other words, what would Jon Snow do? More after this. 
Since the beginning of our company, Novo Nordisk, a hundred years ago, we have been working to help people with chronic diseases live full and healthy lives. And while people today are living longer than ever before, rising rates of obesity and diabetes threaten the health and prosperity of future generations. Together with our partners, we are going beyond medicine to strengthen disease prevention and early intervention, driving change for the health of generations to come with the ultimate goal of a world free from the burden of chronic disease. To learn more, visit novonordisk.ca. So it sounds like what city builders need to do to create equitable communities is actually engage with communities that are there. To Alain Miguelez's great credit, he's all about that consultation. I think planning departments across the country do have a leadership role that they need to play. And we certainly want to play a leadership role. Consultation, of course, is part and parcel of what we do. But I think it's, as I said, a deep understanding of and reading of the city in its various contexts to see what would need to happen in each type of area for a certain set of outcomes to be possible. And that is professional and technical work to a great degree, and it is coordinational work with all other departments in a municipality that have action on urban space. And that's great. Everyone likes that word, consultation. That's why we hear about it so much in politics, right? And Jay, don't you agree? Didn't you say consultation earlier? So my friends, you'll note that I didn't use the term consultation. I used the term co-creation. And there's a difference between those two things. Consultation is pretty much theater. It's municipal theater. So generally speaking, the municipality decides what it would like to do. It comes out to the community asking five very close-ended questions that are often superficial. And the conversation is often, um, it moves too quickly, it's contentious, and completely unproductive. That is absolutely not what co-creation is. Co-creation requires following the lead of the community, respecting the fact that as urbanists, we have a toolkit of technical expertise, which is indeed important, but the community has lived experiences. They have the feeling of the place. They know the intangible history of the place, meaning the daily routes and rituals and tragedies and celebrations. And until you get on the ground with residents, literally walking their parks and sidewalks, taking the bus and the subway, you absolutely have no right to have an idea about what their neighborhood should look like. The Toronto neighborhood of Kingston Galloway Orton Park, located in East Scarborough, is an example of what this could look like in practice. That's one of Canada's most at-risk and diverse neighborhoods, and it's home to the largest concentration of social housing in Ontario. People living there deal with poor public transit options, inadequate housing, and high unemployment. And that's a cocktail that has managed to keep approximately 40% of those neighborhood households in poverty. Neighborhoods like Kingston Galloway Orton Park often inspire a bunch of different kinds of experts to want to help out. Social workers, urban planners, and architects, for example. But one of the major challenges is that these disciplines often have their own unique ways of doing things without really knowing how to work together. And so their well-intentioned efforts can actually create a new problem instead of a new solution. So the neighborhood decided to try something new, 
something they called the Community Design Initiative. An East Scarborough Community Center and an architecture firm and think tank joined forces, and they asked for ideas from local youth and design experts. Together, they worked to convert a former police station into a community facility and made it clear that the people who actually lived in the neighborhood had real power to decide the end results of a project that didn't have a predetermined outcome. In the end, the process created the East Scarborough Storefront, a vital hub that provides 35 different kinds of social services, incubates local ideas, and hosts events. The goal wasn't just to build something new. It was also to inspire the actual people who live there to get involved, sparking and sustaining well-being in the neighborhood. That's the problem with even the most well-intentioned government-led design initiatives, and the 15-minute city definitely qualifies as that. Plenty of communities, especially the most disenfranchised, are tired of just being told what it is they need. Of course, on the other hand, urban planners, policymakers, designers, they're professionals with lots of experience and knowledge. So it begs the question, what makes an expert here? Is it those with the data, the tools, and the education who sit adjacent to City Hall? Or is it those on the ground who live, work, and grow there? The people, as Jay says, who have that knowledge of the intangible history of a place. The fact is, it's both. So how do you bridge that gap? Here's Alain. Well, we have colleagues that are extremely competent in uh, public consultation here at the City of Ottawa, and they've done a tremendous job at helping us frame all the questions that have been part of our public consultation exercise. But you're asking an excellent question. People hate to be talked down to, and that's certainly not what we want to do. But also, I mean, if your pipe leaks in your house, you're going to call a plumber, and the plumber will have a technical response as to what you need to do. Urban planners, we are a profession. We, we do hear from the public about a number of things. And then our advice to city council is, well, if you want certain results, what do you need to do? It's one of these things. I mean, the pulse of society is something that city councils are, you know, always on top of, and they're always conveying information to city departments. We go and seek it out as well, you know, at various levels of, of scale. But then the work that we do is to recommend a course of action to our city council. But as well-intentioned as it all seems, and it most certainly does appear that way, Jay thinks it's this very kind of thinking that brings her back to what it is about the 15-minute city that doesn't quite sit right with her. So we know that Canadian cities are founded upon a Eurocentric vision of place. And so city building, city making is tethered to the act of colonizing Indigenous peoples and their lands. And what that means is that colonialists uh, surveyed the lands, determined uses, determined where everyone was going to go without consultation. They had a big, brilliant idea. And we know how well that worked out. And then later on, urbanists had the big, brilliant idea of really supporting and designing car-centric infrastructure. So while this idea 
So while the concept of the 15-minute city contests car-centric infrastructure, what urbanists won't tell you is that urbanism actually played a critical role in propagating car-centric infrastructure. And so there's a complete lack of professional humility and reflexivity here. We have to slow down we have to go slow enough to really do the kind of mapping that I'm talking about, mapping amenities, mapping people's desired travel patterns, and mapping industry growth. And they haven't done that. So the idea of coming forward with a big idea without actually talking to people is a very colonial approach. And people don't want urban planning done to them any longer. People of all races and all backgrounds, we want the opportunity to co-create the places where we live, love, and work. Here's the thing. I actually already live in something like a 15-minute neighborhood. Where I live, I'm minutes away from a bank, a bookshop, a grocery store, a park, a pharmacy, an ice cream place, an amazing cafe. The kinds of things that make my specific life easier. But I also know that this wouldn't work for everyone. Building healthy cities is about building them for everyone who actually lives there. And understanding that there are different kinds of expertise, different kinds of intention, and different kinds of lives. And that's going to require something even more charitable than good intentions. Like Jay says, it's going to take time. On the next episode of City Space, we're looking at how urban housing realities have drastically changed for the middle class within one generation. How our cities can work to retain those folks by offering better housing solutions. And why we need to break our delicious addiction to excessive personal space. City Space is produced by Julia De Laurentiis Johnston. It's written by Julia, Kieran Rana, and me, Adrian Lee, with research assistance from Shannon Clark. Our theme song is by Andrew Austin. Evan Miles of Post Office Sound edits our show. Our executive producer is Kieran Rana. Thanks to our guests this episode, Alain Miguelez and Jay Pitter, for lending us their time to record this show remotely. You can find them online at Alain Miguelez on Twitter and jpitter.com. If you like what you heard, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and tell your favorite city dweller about City Space, too. I'm Adrian Lee. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.